Good morning, church family. It is a joy to be here with you on the Lord's Day, getting to celebrate the end of the year here in front of God's Word. God's been working on me, Revelation 21, and I want him to complete that work. So let's begin that time in prayer together. Dear Lord, we know that in your word, you've told us the word of the Lord remains forever. And there are some, some things in this word, there are promises that seem outlandish, they seem unbelievable, but Lord, they're true. So it's our prayer today that you would help us to hear, understand, believe, and obey your word so that we might know you and love you and long to see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as many of you guys know, by now, we are in Advent. Kind of, right? We're we're at the end of Advent, and we've seen Jesus already come at Christmas. So where does that leave us today? Well, during Advent, we've been echoing the sounds and the words of that great hymn, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. And now Jesus has come. So what? Well, what many theologians and many pastors, and in fact, a lot of people around this church, would say is that right now we live in an in-between time. So we might even use this phrase, we live in a time of already but not yet. So today, we're going to focus a little bit less on what happened when Jesus came the first time in Bethlehem. And we're going to look forward to the fact that Jesus is coming again. Amen? And there are promises that he has that are coming with him. Today's words from the great hymn that we're going to be talking about are Dear Desire of Every Nation. Joy of every longing heart. And our passage today is Revelation 21. So if you have your Bible or your iPhone with you, you can go ahead and flip to that chapter. Revelation 21 is where we'll be at today. So let me just set some context for Revelation. Right? Of all, of all books of the Bible to get to preach on, yay for Revelation. <laughs> Revelation, as some of you guys know, was written by the Apostle John when he was exiled on an island called Patmos. It says that in Revelation 1.9. It was written to these seven churches throughout Asia Minor who they were a persecuted religious minority in a, in a culture of Roman emperor worship, in a culture of luxurious sins. And so what John's trying to do here is he's been given a vision from the Lord and he's written it down so that these churches like us, we will stand fast, will not give up because the battle between God And the forces of evil is coming. And there will be a winner. So today, in light of this context, in light of this big picture vision that we have in Revelation, and in light of the fact that even though Revelation has lots of detailed imagery, it helps us some, right? It tells us what some of the details are, but that we want to focus on the big picture of what God's displaying. Today what we're going to see from Revelation 21 is that God brings us the best. God brings us the best. 
And we're going to put God's future for us in the spotlight today, particularly highlighting three features of God's best for us. God brings victory. God brings completeness. And God brings glory. So with that, let's start in verse 9, exploring the first feature of God's best for us. God brings victory. And we'll see this in verses 9 and 10. So let me go ahead and read those verses for us. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, that is John, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And verse 9, an angel tells John, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb. But then when John turns and looks, what does he see? Does he see a woman just bedecked in bridal garments of splendor? No, he doesn't. He sees a city. What we need to understand from this today is that this city, this bride, is the perfected people of God. But what you may not know is that when you hear this angel taking John up to this mountain to see this city, that John has actually experienced something like this really similar just four chapters earlier. In chapter 17. Only what he saw there was horridly different than what he sees here in chapter 21. Like a good church, I can already hear pages flipping. If you want to, we're going to scan through it. You can flip back to chapter 17. But the point is, there in chapter 17, instead of saying to John, come see the bride, an angel says to him, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. In order for us to recognize the victory that God's bringing to his bride, his people, we have to first look over our shoulder back at chapter 17 for a moment and realize the awful defeat that God has brought to the prostitute. Those who are against God. Now, everything about this prostitute in chapter 17 provides a contrast with the bride that we're about to encounter in our passage. Instead of taking John to a high mountain, for instance... The angel takes John into the wilderness. Instead of a bride, one who is faithful, he takes him to a prostitute, one who is intentionally sexually immoral. And although this prostitute is also covered with precious materials, and she holds a golden cup in her hand, that cup and her very body are filled with the consequences of her sexual immorality. And she is glutted with the blood of Of the saints. This prostitute is not a new Jerusalem, a city of God for the people of God. She's a new Babylon, the culmination of all of earth's abominations. What's so painful about this prostitute's influence? Like it says in verse 15, verse 18 of this chapter, that chapter 17, is that she sits over the peoples of the nations of the world. And she has dominion over the kings of the earth. 
This picture is meant to frighten us and to sicken us. This gorgeously arrayed prostitute on a crimson beast who holds sway over the world. A sway that both lures men and nations into the drunkenness of sin and also crushes those who believe in Jesus. But there's also one more contrast between the prostitute and the bride. Their outcome. Because in chapter 18, this prostitute is once for all destroyed in fire and smoke. In fact, an angel gives a word picture for all who would see. And he says those who followed the prostitute were going to be like a stone thrown into the sea. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sins of this world are eternally not worth it. There's a very different outcome in our chapter today for the future of the bride. One where all luring temptation and all crushing opposition are dead. And the bride reigns forever in victory. In effect, John's saying something with these two images. He's telling these people, don't give in and don't give up. Because the victory is coming. And that's the exact same thing, not only that these churches need to hear, but that we need to hear today. Don't give in. Don't give in to these luring temptations that come after it. Because you and I both know that even though we may not be facing Roman emperor worship, we are certainly facing a culture that wants to press us into conformity with the world. Are we not? That's why Paul has to say in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how many of us have even let Christmas get the better of us? We said gifts and presents weren't that big of a deal, but we spent too much money simply to garner the praise and affection for friends and our family. Or we just simply worshipped stuff, our iPhones and our iPads and our whatever else is, Right? But if some of us are being tested with luxury, friends of Indianapolis and Carmel and everywhere else in this area, in America, North America, we have to realize that this is a huge temptation that can conform us. And it's one in which even the prostitute herself is judged for. In chapter 18, it says, As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment. And mourning. Boy, that is not the future that I want for me or anyone else. Don't give in to the luxury or the world's sway. But also don't give up. Because we truly are in a race that one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture talks about, the beginning of Hebrews 12, where it says, man, there's a crowd of witnesses that have gone before that are surrounding us, so you run this race, you take off these entanglements and weights, you take off these sins, and you run with your eyes fixed on Jesus, who's at the finish line. But we're not there yet, right? Just like any marathon or we know, we've got some training and some work to do, but you don't give up or you won't get there. Don't give up because like a 
pastor friend of mine in India that I met in India would say, who, who lives in a, in a persecuted world, kind of like that Roman Empire, yet he shared the gospel with every person on his crowded city block. He said recently, if we live by fear instead of faith, we'll never do what God has for us. How true that is, right? How many promises there are that are given in the first chapters of this book to him who conquers, to the one who endures, oh, there will be a great victory. So, if you're struggling to keep your head above water in a hostile home life, don't give up. If you're striving to be kind of like Jesus as best you can at school, when everyone else around you just loves sin, don't give up. If you're facing opposition at work, if you're facing the denigration of your faith, don't give up. God will give you victory. The prostitute and those with her will be defeated. And the bride, God's people will be presented as the long-suffering winner. So now it's time to see God's second feature of God's best. And we know that God brings victory, but God also brings completeness. And we'll see this from verse 11 all the way through verse 21. Because starting in verse 11, we're going to see a long description of the city that God's bringing. In verses 12 through 14... We see one characteristic of this completeness. That the city is the complete people of God. I love this. This city completes God's plan for Israel and for the church. The 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on the gates. Verse 12. And the names of the 12 apostles are on the foundations of this city. Verse 14. And this reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. All of God's people before Christ's incarnation or since his incarnation will be able to experience God forever in his city as his people. Completed. The complete family of God. Now, if some of you think that God's people are pretty ugly, and don't look at the person next to you, but if you look at the people, you know, in the Old Testament, and you say, man, I look at Israel, I just see nothing, but they're, they're idolatry, and they're grumbling, right? Or you look at the church, and you say, oh my gracious, I see their dissension, and this hypocrisy, and it just is so ugly. Well, well please, take a look at these pearl gates. Take a look at these gemstone-laden foundations and realize that what looks ugly now, God is perfecting so it is beautiful. And do everything you can, not to stay ugly yourself, but do everything you can to become part of that beautiful, complete people. We also see in verse 12... This city's complete in its protection. Now, I remember when I was seven years old, it was the first time I read the Bible. Now, before you get too impressed, I only got four chapters in, okay? 
So I assure you, I've read more than that to prepare for today. But why I remember when I was seven years old is because in the third chapter of the Bible, there is one being that just, just sparked my imagination that I'd never heard of before. And it was this angel with a flaming sword that is set to guard the Garden of Eden once Adam and Eve are kicked out because of their rebellion against God. And that angelic guardian is exactly what we see in this passage. Times 12. Right Over every one of these gates, a guardian like that is saying, this city is God's. In fact, in verse 27, it says, no wicked thing can enter it. And can't we take some comfort in that kind of protection today? That the same God that David talks about again and again and again and again in the Psalms as a refuge in time of need, a safe place, and a God who's going to have 12 angelic guardians over our city on the final day will be the one who today, when life seems a little unsafe, can be called out to as our protector. You bet he can be. He brings protection, complete protection. But just as he completes his people, just as God completes his protection on this city, there's another characteristic we see in verse 15. And this is an important one because it's that the city is complete with God's presence. Now, before you look at verses 15 through 17 and you say, Bob, I'm not interested in talking about measurements today. Like if I wanted that, I would have gone to Home Depot. First of all, thank you. I'm glad you didn't go to Home Depot. I'm glad you're here worshiping the Lord today. But let me tell you why these measurements are important for God's people. It's because when we see in verse 15, an angel with a strange thing called a measuring rod who appears to John, we need to think back to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 40, when a similar angel with a similar thing in his hand, a measuring rod, appears to the prophet Ezekiel. Now, why? Why do we need to go back there? Because that angel displayed to that prophet the future restored temple of God's people. And here in Revelation 21, we are seeing the final restored temple of God's people. The place where God will be. Because the difference is, It's a citywide temple. God's glory fills this place. And guess what? It's a cube. Right? Now, if you were to read the measurements without context, you might get really confused as to why the city is a cube with with length and width and height all equal. Now, some, some of you may remember this past year's sermon series on Exodus that Pastor Mark led us through. You may remember one Sunday when there were poles up here on the stage to measure out something. Does anyone remember what that was? Okay, yeah, it was the... That's fine. It was... Yeah, it it was the tabernacle, right? But particularly, it was this inner sanctum inside the tabernacle that God's people took with them in their travels called the Holy of Holies, the place where of all places God met with man. His presence was there. Now, why do you think that God's final city would be pictured to John as a giant cubic holy of holies? 
Because like that holy of holies, it's the place where God meets face to face with man. But unlike that holy of holies, there is no barrier. Nothing is unexposed or untouched by God's presence. He is completely there meeting face to face with us. That's right. Now, have you ever had a moment in worship where you felt like you had both a deep sense of God's greatness and also his nearness? That God really was the king of heaven and earth, but he was also meeting your need. He was answering your prayer. For some of you, that may have even been this morning. Oh, what a beautiful time of worship we've had this morning. But I tell you what, just like my family celebrates Christmas Eve by opening one small gift, just before the big gift fest of Christmas Day, those things are not the culmination. That sweetness of the greatness and the nearness of God is just a taste, just a Christmas Eve of the fullness of Christmas Day that we're going to receive when we are in God's presence forever. And he is forever great and he is forever near. That is the worship we long for. Now, some of you guys are still hung up on the measurements, right? So, in case you're wondering, 12,000 stadia is about 1,300 or 1,400 miles. So it's from Indianapolis to Gallup, New Mexico. If you're saying, Bob, I have no idea where Gallup, New Mexico is, it's all right. The only reason I know is because I've driven across this great nation 10 times, having gone to college in California and having two brothers doing the same. And what I can tell you about the, if that's the length of this city, then this city is roughly what our southern brothers and sisters would call a big old honkin' city. <laughs> that's theological terminology right there. But the issue with this city here is not, and these measurements is not just the grandeur of its size. It's, it's two other things. Twelve is the number of completeness. So just as God, God completed his, his people with 12 tribes, Jesus completed his followers with 12 followers, all the dimensions of the city are 12, right? 12,000 stadia in length and height and width, 144 cubits, 12 squared. So don't forget, remember I said don't get lost in the details. The point of this passage is the city is complete. It's finished. The number 12, there's, no, there's nothing left to be built. There's nothing left to be experienced or encountered. But not only did we see the number 12, but the other thing we've got to take away is that God's presence is in it. That's why it's complete. It's a cube filled. So the city's complete in its people. It's complete in its protection. It's complete in God's presence being there. But we'd be missing something if we didn't also point out a final observation of the city's completeness. That the city is complete in Beauty. Verse 11 kicks off a beautiful summary that that later gets described in verses 18 through 21. So since it's a good summary, let me just read verse 11 for us. Having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, 
And let's take a tour of the city for a moment. What, what is this wall? And what is this city made of? Well, the wall is built of jasper. So it says in verse 18, a beautiful stone. Right? It comes in a medley of colors. It could be bright red or soft olive or polychrome. But what kind of resources does it take to build a wall like we just described 200 feet out of pure jasper? There is no end to God's supply. And let, let me give you an example. I was recently grabbing lunch with a friend of mine who happens to be a carpenter. He says he was doing a work in a, in a home. He was telling me about it. And he said, in this home, every cabinet in the house is, has finely worked intricate carvings on every cabinet, hand done in Mexico. And he was just, he was blown away by the beautiful extravagance of this house. Now, uh, some of you may have a little bit lesser home renovations that are going on. But for just a moment, imagine what would your home look like if cost was not an issue and if pretension was not an issue, all right? If you need to close your eyes, you can. What would your home look like, right? A a Tudor-style castle, right? A, A plasma screen sports fest, Something, something completely of your own imagination? Well, God is in effect telling his divine builders, spare no expense, spare nothing beautiful, do it all, right? Probably the opposite of whatever your husband said when you proposed the renovation, right? He says, do it all, right? Cost is no option. This place has to be the best for my people and it will be. I own it all. It is perfect in its beauty. And similarly, there's other precious metals, precious materials, precious gems in this city. For instance, the city's foundations are covered in the most precious and beautiful gemstones, verses 18 through 20. And each gate is made of a single pearl, verse 21. Right, a a, a pearl that big would be priceless. And here's 12 of them. And God says, just go put them on the gate posts, right? He puts them on the gateposts and he puts jewels as beautiful as that of the high priest's garments back in Exodus on the ground underneath the city. Gorgeous. But let's slow down for just a second for the final material because the city itself is also built of pure gold. I'm sure nobody missed this and I'm sure probably everybody today already came in with that picture in their mind, right? Whether it's from Tom and Jerry cartoons or wherever. It's a gold city, right? Streets of gold, right? Verse 21, made of pure gold, immensely precious. But the gold is not just costly, and it's not just beautiful. This gold harkens back again to the Holy of Holies, whose instruments of worship were overlaid with gold, right? Exodus 25. It's not just a a precious or a beautiful metal. It reminds us of the sanctity of this place. In the city... All is holy. In fact, John says that the gold is so pure that it's as clear as glass. Now, let me assuage your doubts for just a minute. I don't know a lot about metals, but I have never seen gold that is as clear as glass. But I kind of think that that's part of the point. That it is so pure 
that it is unearthly in its beauty. Imagine that the very ground beneath your feet is being paved with something so pure and so precious that you've never even seen something like it on earth. Right? It's, it's like when God first meets Moses in Exodus 3 and he says to him, he, he says, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Only it's all holy ground. Now maybe you've experienced, like I have, a moment of unworthiness. When you, when you stepped into a relationship or a ch- church or an opportunity and you felt like you were out of place, right? You felt like the things that were wrong in your life made you unworthy. You, you couldn't really enter into worship with God. You couldn't enter into connection with other people before you had some cleaning up. Well, let me assure you, friends, The assembly of God is for everyone who is dirty, but who has been made clean by Jesus. What does Jesus do? On his very night, last night on earth with his disciples, he bends down and he washes their dirty feet. Right? He, He even says explicitly to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Those who aren't washed by Jesus' life and his death on their behalf can't step into God's presence. But everyone who lets Jesus wash their sins, oh, he will wash your feet so clean that they can walk on streets of glassy gold. God can make you complete so you can be in this city. The city is beautiful. It's worthy, it's holy, it's complete. For everything that's unfinished and unresolved in this life, we have to delight in the fact that God brings completeness. Whether it's his people, or it's protection, or it's his very presence, or it's beauty that's already begun in his people. We have to delight in what Paul says is a promise worth banking your spiritual life on. So if you forget everything else today and you're wondering, what does the God of that city have to do with me today? Remember Philippians 1.6 because it says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God leaves no unfinished business. So, now that we've seen that this this really is a complete city, it's time for us to uncover the third and the final feature of God's best. That God brings glory. And we're going to see this in verses 22 through 27. So let me go ahead and read, starting in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. It may seem strange that 
of all places in God's final reality, there's no temple. But, as we already talked about, it's because everything's the temple. Everywhere is the temple. There is no temple because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Right? A huge difference from what we have known on this earth and what it will be like. The temple forever was a place of meeting with God through a mediator that God and man could only meet there. But here in this place, that lamb has been the mediator for all. So God and man meet together forever. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Remember Jesus' words? his disciples in John 13. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Second coming. And where I am, you may be also. (laughs) Friends, This city is the climax of all history and every human longing, not because of its timing, not because of its beauty, but because it's where Jesus is and because we get to be with him. Oh, beautiful. John continues to elaborate on this presence of God then in verse 23, because there he says, there's no need for sun or moon. The glory of God is, gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. Now, I have a couple of roommates who love to run three miles a night. I did not grow up a runner. All right, I grew up a soccer player because everybody knows in soccer, you run a ton of laps and then you get to play soccer. Right? Not so with running. Nonetheless, I head out with them every night and the only thing that I have on the two of them, it's not speed, it's not finesse, it's looks. Because... I carry with me a beautiful, clunky, highly used headlamp. Now, other than looking very stylish, why do I wear this thing? Because I want to see where I'm going, right? And frankly, I would prefer not to get hit by a car, right? The only thing that makes running worse, right? Getting hit by a car. But if you, if you saw me at noon, right, on a Saturday... And you pulled up and you saw me wearing this headlamp in the middle of the day, other than telling me, you know, I look devilishly snappy, you'd probably, you know, pull over, roll down your window and say, Bob, you don't need the headlamp. It's bright enough to see everything out here. And that's exactly what it's like in the New Jerusalem. Friends, we don't even need a sun. We don't need a moon. The glory of everything is eclipsed with the glory of God. What's, what's glory? His weightiness and worth. His presence that makes seeing everything suddenly understandable and good. The Lamb and God is the light. But there's another amazing implication of this light, this glory. The world is drawn to its light. Like bugs. Let me read verse 24. By its light will the nations walk. The city's light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
And what on earth, what on earth could make the kings of the earth, those who set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed, right? As Psalm 2 would tell us, what would make them actually stream into the city to present their glory, right? Their worth, their prestige to another. It's because the glory of the true king has been revealed. The wrath of the judge has been poured out and his reign is now on display for all to enter in who've been made right with him. Jesus' fundamental calling on earth has finally been fulfilled. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Every nation will now be brought to the light. Every king of every kingdom, every diverse people group will bring their self and their glory to this king. Every nation will worship him. So don't you finish giving up on Bible translation. Don't you stop praying for your brothers and sisters across the world because it is God's desire that every nation stream to the lamb. That's his magnetic glory. Now some of you may also remember, Bob, I thought this was an Advent sermon. Right, well, well, kind of. A post-Advent sermon, whatever that means. I think this is the perfect text for the perfect time. Let me tell you why. Do any of you remember another time when the nations came to bring their gifts to the true king? Well, let me back us up for just a second. Because back in Isaiah chapter 60, the great prophet is looking forward to God restoring his people. And he gives a couple really interesting descriptions of what that day is going to be like. Let me read just a couple. Isaiah 60 verse 3. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah 60 verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. They shall bring gold and and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Nations will come to the light and they will bring their gifts to the king. Then after long waiting, what do we see in Matthew chapter 2? After a little child is born in Bethlehem, we see nations coming to the light and bringing their gifts to the king. Going into the house, they, the wise men, saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But then the king says he's going away, and he dies for the sins of man. And he is raised by the power of God and goes into the glories of God in heaven where we await his return. And that is what we await for today, friends. His second advent. For when he comes again with judgment and victory in his hands, the nations will once for all come to the light and they will bring their gifts to the king, including us. The city's not centered around you or me. It's centered on the glorious lamb that we long to worship. 
There's one more verse, one last verse that describes the effect of this glory. Let me read verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The story doesn't end simply, and everyone lived happily ever after. There are those who will not be in this city. They cannot be. They're not clean. They're not holy. They do not want to be in God's glory. They long for the prostitute, not for the bride. And God will give them what they want. For some of you, you're sure looking forward to your 2014 goals. But the fact of the matter is, 2014 isn't going to be any different for you than 2013. Why is that? It's because you have no end game. When does the weight loss stop? When does the self-improvement stop? When do the goals for family and career stop? Revelation 21 has the ultimate answer that you're not plugged into. The glorious Lamb. Oh, and of all the things that our Lord could be described as, the King of Kings, the Great Judge, the Prince of Peace, He's called the Lamb here for a reason because the Gospel is at the center of this city. He is the sacrifice who took your evil and gave you his righteousness, if you believe on him. It's the lamb that's the center of the city. So if you find yourself in that place, don't set 2014 goals. Prepare yourself for that day when you could be standing with the assembly of men and women made right with the glorious lamb. Because boy, if he's done that, does he deserve the glory And for those who know the Lamb, for those who are part of his kingdom already, this passage ends with such glorious personableness. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life have a place here. If you're at the end of 2013 and you're in a place of loneliness, you're in a place of fear of the future, this verse is a verse for you. Because the creator, redeemer, judge, God has your name written in his book. Right? It's like, it's like one of the Psalms says that in his book were written for me all the days when before as yet there was one of them. He knows. He knows what it was like in 2013 that it was hard. He knows what 2014 holds. And he knows what every day leading up to you seeing him face to face holds. But he has you written in his book. He knows you by name. And he's pulling every strand of history and circumstance to get you to see him face to face on that day. So you hold on to that verse as you look into this new year and beyond. Because God will graciously show you his glory this year and in the future until he wipes every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more death, no more pain, no more crying. For we will be his people and God himself will be our God. God brings us victory. God brings us completeness. God brings us glory. Friends, God brings us the best. May he do that in us this year and into the future. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, thank you that you are faithful and you will reward us. Thank you for giving us the best, yourself and your son, the Lord Jesus, the lamb. As we look forward to this year and beyond, oh Lord, would you just let the hope of what you're bringing give us strength and joy now. Jesus, we look forward to you coming again. Dear desire of every nation, you are the joy of all our longing hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bob, thank you. God bless you, man. You know, at the end of the book of uh, Romans, uh, Paul summarizing all of the great doctrinal truths, he says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a reason why he says that. There's a reason why texts like Revelation 21 are in our Bible. It's because we need to be reminded what the best really is and who really wins. Because we live in the interim where sometimes we wonder, So who's really winning? Did you ever have that thought? Maybe even this last week? Murder of a wonderful mom and daughter. and Just wonder, what's going on, Lord? Are you really winning? So it's good to be reminded of these things. It's good to be reminded that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then Paul says, and the grace of Jesus be with all of you. There's the contrast. Jesus will be with you and God will win the day. So, as we conclude, if there's something going on in your life that you would like to have someone pray over you about, something, you're walking through a season of life that is just really challenging and you need to be reminded as to what is really best and what's really, what life really is all about, there'll be some folks up here afterwards who'd love to be able to pray over you and help you. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure out what does it mean to have a relationship with Christ, have my sins forgiven. These folks would love to have that conversation with you. So just be reminded today that at the end of the day, God wins. He will crush Satan under his feet, under our feet for that matter, right? Amen. So the grace of Jesus Christ be with you, friends. I love you, College Park. God bless you. Thanks for coming.